everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee and talking about anything and everything. We may use explicit language and we'll almost certainly drop F-bombs, but none of that is the point or the drive of the content, so consider us PG-13. There will be rants and raves and occasional readings. There will be conflicting creative advice driven by at least three utterly disparate points of view. Your hosts today are web spider David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 17 with guests Raymond Greer and L. Douglas Skerritt. Do we call you Doug? You can call me Doug. Fantastic. We'll call you Ray. You can call me Ray. Welcome. <laughs> Good morning and thank you for the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> we were lucky enough to catch uh, Doug on his way through. Doug is a friend of uh, Ray's and Ray's wife, Nikki, and me, hopefully, coming in here soon. <laughs> oh, yeah. At this hour, you could say that. <laughs> That's right. Um Doug is a board game designer and has written a thriller called Remember When that I had the fortune to read when it was in some of the early stages. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) Of course. And uh, Ray also has been involved both in board games and online computer games and the movie industry. So writing in all of these different areas is such a fascinating thing. So let's start with the fun, easy stuff. Let's talk about games real quick. Oh, my word. (laughs) The door we came in through. (laughs) Yes. Well, a lot has changed since then. You live in a golden age. Um, I was one of the old heroes from Hero Games days. We made not the first, but probably the best um, superhero role-playing game. Champions? Champions. Uh, Oh, 30 Dice of Knockback. We all remember Champions. (laughs) We know it. So when people were busy... Uh, complaining about the land of murder hobos in this fantasy setting, and we wanted to give kids a uh, a better idea and role model. Um, you know, we, we we tried something different and backed into a, a mechanic that became popular that could be used for anything. And so, consequently, we did that. We had different genres all connected with the same game, which back in those days was a big deal. And oddly enough. My buddy Doug here wrote uh, our our spy and secret agent thing called Danger International. It was fun. I got brought in from the side to do basically the movie version of spies uh, with all of the uh, the ham-fisted cliches that appropriately go with it. And uh, in the midst of that, uh, I got to uh, be involved as they got to other genres. And I ended up at one point uh, writing a pretty lengthy uh, future history treatment for a potential star hero game and a bunch of um, uh, structural material and adventure settings for their fantasy game. And so I got to reach from my background, which I did know, which was international affairs and the way real law enforcement and espionage works, to uh, the game side of it and have a lot of fun doing it and put a lot of it on paper. I then walked away from writing for the next 15 years. Never touched it. It was very strange. The gaming era ended with some short fiction, Hmm. and then I went in a different direction for a while. Mm -hmm. Oh, I get that. There's a lot of people that don't really come back to writing until they have, and maybe it's thinking about the time, or maybe you're playing less games, so therefore you have more time to write games. I don't know. 
right? When you, you get a chance to look at your life experience and the, the things you've seen and go, you know, hey, I, I want to express that. What do I do? Oh, I know. Well, I'll use the things I know, or maybe I'll learn something new, or I'll try something new. Yeah, it all happens. So were you the uh, the technical writer or the creative writer or both on Champions? Okay. So George McDonald and uh, Steve Peterson were actually the leads. I did a lot of piecework and ran the business. So basically, I got to do all the awful stuff that they didn't want to do. Oh, my God. Tables. <laughs> <laughs> George was the, was the systems guru yeah. and had actually spent the time coming up with the numbers and the role play and the... Um, the roles behind the role play. Yes, Steve understood um, words. So yes. <laughs> now I have to say, though, that those were flint knives and bearskin days. Okay. We were well ahead of the curve because instead of going and doing production to send things out for a linotype machine at great personal expense, we had figured out how to use a personal computer and an IBM Selectric typewriter with a fresh ribbon, um, good enough to make boards. Yes, back in those days, you put paper on boards to send to a printer, okay, um, and get production costs to something that was affordable to the hobbyist at that time who had no money. These days, there is an amazing array of ways to publish never seeing paper at all, with distribution through the web that makes it trivial. Uh, Drive-through RPG plug. Okay. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> plug our friends at Drive-through RPG. Ever been in print? It's there for cheap. Go get it. Mm -hmm. um, which See. means that if you have an idea for a role-playing game, which means it's not the standard genres, or not the standard ways to do it, or not the standard dice, or not the standard groups or subsets, or slice the apple however thin you want. Now is the time. It's cheap to do. It really well, is. There was uh, one of Dave's favorite games is Fiasco, which, mm -hmm. as near as I can tell, is almost entirely PDF-based. Uh, or was there ever a hard no, copy? Was, I, I found it in a game I, shop one time. I, oh, okay. I have a copy of, of the print Fiasco, but it is not the standard way to um, absorb the, uh, the yeah. process. D Dave actually wrote a module for it, Sweet. which, for my birthday, he gave it to me. <laughs> so. At the time, I couldn't find any steampunk um, um, story. Yeah, they didn't uh, have them. But did you do one? That's cool. Did. Dave did a steampunk fiasco episode. I would like to see this. Yeah. <laughs> now now I, I've seen other ones on the web, but uh, at the time, I just couldn't find one. I'll, I'll send you his. It's it's. I think it's incredibly cool. And maybe we can find a way to post it on the website because I really do think it's cool. And. I'm a big believer that people around the world should play Fiasco because it's a very silly game. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I'm finding over time the interrelationship between people who either gamed as their hobby or came up through gaming into creative writing and concept work. Over time, they've all ended up nested into other groups of recreation or fantasy activities. One of the best groups up I've got up in Washington State have a group that came out of a gaming club focused on role-playing only and have splintered off respectively into a writing for storytelling only, not, which eventually then led to novella-length novels, etc. And the side group from that went the other way and are costumers, steampunk recreators, and extremely mm -hmm. active in live action. 
it's it's the creativity either way i think of saying that i have i have a character that has a story uh-huh. and i really want to share that story i mean i if you listen to earlier episodes we all went on about how many of us came up through the land of mushing yes mm-hmm. but before there was a mush there was you know the box set of D that mom brings home and says hey let's play this weird game this looks mm-hmm. like fun mm-hmm. you know so there's i i think there to a certain extent there's the people that are drawn to the idea of stories, some that want to write and tell them perhaps, and some that want to be a part of them somehow. Mm -hmm. And maybe that comes down to the writing and readership of the world, but we all want to play a game or usually I found that gaming overlaps with the any other different groups, like most times, if you find a group of costumers, you also find a group of readers Mm -hmm. and a group of gamers and a group of, we we, we know our own history buffs. Yes. That was Ray's phone. I'm going to turn a question back to you because I'm genuinely curious. What's up? When you think about wanting to start a story, do you think of a story and look for the character to tell it with? Or do you think of the character and look around and say, what's his story? Horrifyingly, I have a lot of my stories start with what I dreamed last night. That's fine. Okay. (laughs) Now... In my dreams, I am apparently both, I have been a girl, I've been a guy, I've been a little pink elephant, you know, so I have have no problem. I must admit, I like the trunk. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So, uh, or those come out of it in some way. For instance, the, I have found a certain, I don't even want to say gender fluidity, because Mm -hmm. I don't want to borrow from the wrong group Mm -hmm. what is not mine to own. But at the same time, I've been a guy, and I've been in a dream it didn't really matter what gender I was. I was yeah. just a force, a person that needed to do this and find out. Like, I have one that was my my dark superhero future one that needs to. I need to finish five other novels so that I can write that one because <laughs> it's waiting. It wants because to come it's out. waiting, and I already wrote you know a few thousand words on it. But so that's it's the same general path I think in that you start with scenes and then scenes become stories. And then stories, you find out that that's not really a short story. There's too much mm-hmm. that it's actually a novel. And I think, like when I first read yours, I, you know, I was thinking, there's so much here. Oh yeah, there, I, there, it I was too this, short. <laughs> I had this horrific problem of I had exactly a moment to tell, and the perspective that I wanted to get that moment told, I was well aware by the second day of the process that what I was experiencing was this should be part of a much bigger story. Yeah. (laughs) Glad you reaffirm your instincts there. (laughs) Yeah. But I really wanted to somehow get, this was a case of the writer desperately needing to get a story out so he could sleep the next day, by the way. Um, That happened. Um, But I had to get the moment out. And it's actually not just, you know, only a 50 pages of a novella-length story. It's like the last 10 pages of the 50 length. It's what had to come out. Mm-hmm. So, so getting back to your mm-hmm. question, why do, why do you ask? Uh, what, <laughs> what drives this question? Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is a great joke, by the way. Yes. Um, no, the reason I was asking is because when I bounce some of my ideas off of people in my sort of extended circle, mm-hmm. I get a wide variety of answers, mm-hmm. and gaming in particular seems to force two extremes to the answer. The guys who came up game mastering want to tell a story setting, yep. mm-hmm. 
because they're used to their players bringing the characters to it. Mm -hmm. The people who came up as players have my story to tell. What's the setting? Yep. Hmm. Yep. That makes sense. But, um, I mean, in a more general sense, hmm? I've heard over and over again, there is no one right way to do it, TM. That is mm-hmm. true. There's uh, my, my favorite book, I think I pimped early, and I mentioned it before, is... Um, you know, how to write a, a mystery mm-hmm. novel book. And the, what I loved about it was every single chapter opens with a question. How do you write a novel? And then somebody went out and pulled 20 different novelists, you know, some very famous people, and got 20 different answers. And and even in previous episodes, Chaz writes one way, I write one way. And sometimes they're, they're different. And sometimes I use more than one method, like... Mm-hmm. I'm starting a sequel right now because I've just finished a, uh, a historic fantasy noir. And this time I'm doing an outline and I've never done an outline before oh, in that way. Formalizing it. So I'm just formalizing it saying this is what I, I, I have scenes in my head that have to happen. Yeah. And then saying I went out to Pittsburgh and I did research in the area and for the time of what was going on. And wow, what a bloody history we have in America. We are not a nice people. <laughs> But it was going back and reading it and going to a museum and visiting and seeing the sites. It was like, okay, in order to get all of this out there, and there's a lot of it, I need to kind of inch it out. Because as much as I dive into the history, history has to support the drive of the story. Yeah. So So do you want me to give you the the patented role-playing how to do a mystery thing? Yes. Um, Because when I used to go to conventions all across the country – you would get a short block of time, a bunch of people that didn't know your game, and you'd hand them some pre-generated characters, and you were going to teach them the game, but you wanted to make them interested. And when you didn't have anything else, the locked room mystery in three hours was the thing to do. Locked room mysteries. Yeah. Elaborate so you, on that, if you would. Sure. You would have a, a group of players, whatever they are. It doesn't really matter. You would have a location, probably where you're sitting, uh, that you would then interpret in some way that um, the the people involved in this mystery couldn't call out, bring in other people, bring in other resources. You would then look about the room and see three obvious features and build clues about them. Because you are presenting these to them, they must be important. This is assumed. Right. Okay. Um, I know a side quest when I see one. That's right. a cat sitting there in a pool of light. <clears throat> That'd be the one. <laughs> and you would then answer answer for the first hour anything these people had to think of, pointing out that they are on a timeline. Something bad will happen if they do not solve this between them. You then listen to them debate because they will. They're players. Mm-hmm. Gamers do that. Oh God, yes. And fixate upon the clue you least intended them to do. Correct. But uh, about the time they've pretty much got it wrapped up, you then disprove one of the clues as a red herring and add a fourth. Okay. Then increase the timeline. They now panic. There will be a tremendous amount of flurry because their great answer is down and come up with something. When they come up with this, you congratulate them on their inventiveness because they have solved the mystery, whatever that happens to be, because it's not important. You're attempting to sell games. <laughs> they think they, they, have, they have been victorious. They think you're devious and great, the best ref ever, and they've had the best time because they've all gotten to interact and learn the game and roll dice 
and have a wonderful time and leave and buy your game. Now, the catch here is it only works if they don't know the trick. Okay. Mm-hmm. They don't really understand. Oh my God. Should we like matter. publish this? And- <laughs> yes, we can put clear. this on the air now. <laughs> Let's be clear. You're talking about making it up on the fly. That's absolutely right. right. I came, I came up and my bag with all of my stuff didn't. Mm-hmm. Yes. I ran some of these games for hero back in the day. And it's still a thing that I enjoy the idea of a lot. Is hero fantasy hero or champions? All of it. I did yes. the, the whole nine yards. <laughs> okay. I was weakest on champions. I ran very little champions. I ran a whole metric fuck ton of Fantasy Hero, Danger International, and Justice Incorporated, which was their pulp hero. I remember game. Justice and, and yeah. Pope was Pope was my personal pride and joy because my convention prepared characters were a classic Doc Savage level team of guys. Mm-hmm. Dirk Malcolm mm-hmm. and, and the, the Society, Society of, of Justice. Justice. Uh, you guys yes. have done this before. Yeah. Does it show? Yeah. <laughs> But the locked room mystery, stealing from all of the tropes of uh, everything Agatha Christie did on a weekend to make money, um, with exactly what he mentioned, the third clue you disprove and the fourth one you drop on them late, mm-hmm. with the gamer spin of, and when they have a plausible solution, I then accept it as the answer and reward them for it, mm-hmm. is such a good role-playing technique. Yeah. Is it good to feed into something you're going to write down? Probably not. You have to be the one who jumps to the conclusion. So he's actually proposing the idea of, I start writing my mystery not knowing what the answer is. I don't know. Would you do that? I would. I would. However, (laughs) I I would, but, isn't that the same? There is a very important chapter in that same thing of saying the most important thing, if you're going to have a mystery, is that you... The author must know what Moriarty is doing. Mm-hmm. So you might not know the answer. You might not know the clues that that the characters characters can surprise you, mm-hmm. but you need to know what Moriarty did and in what order, so that the clues make sense. Because there have been a number of, I'll just call them crappy books I didn't finish, where something was not internally consistent within the book. Ooh. Yeah, well, so. Even if even if you, you have things that can come out in different order, like we all saw the bank explode. Right. Now, we know that that was the opening chapter of the book, that the bank exploded, and there was a whole... Moriarty did not just get up, have his coffee, and go down and blow a bank up. You know, that there was more to that, and you need to know what that is. However, all of the different clues that can come out of later, you can surprise yourself because mm-hmm. your character can surprise uh, you. Getting back to the there's more than one way to do it, Tim. Yeah. Um, I think that as long as you know all that stuff in the end, you're okay. Um, my creative writing process when I, on the rare occasions when I'm allowed to be creative, um, (laughs) is to just start putting words down on paper. And, um, if I don't know, I, I would be perfectly comfortable writing a mystery novel, not knowing at the end, what, what was going to happen, it would come out. Do you ever wonder if the people who wrote the script for the movie Clue... <laughs> did, did they actually know that it was Professor Plum with a candlestick? There was a thread on Facebook recently about the new Clue movie, quote-unquote. Yeah. Um, and somebody was saying, well, they should make... You know, there are six, six weapons, six characters. You know, there could be any number of things. And I 
said, yeah, there's, and there's nine rooms. So there's 324 potential movies. Get busy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That was on a Lee Presson's post, I think. And I was, I was the one who suggested they make, you know, said film one of each ending because Clue had three endings. Absolutely. And then it's only when you watch it now, you can rent it and, and it yeah. says, yep, here's, here's ending one. Or it could have been like this, <laughs> but how it really was, was like this. So yeah, I did the math. They were slacking. They could have really. They could have expanded the franchise. Exactly. The only challenge was, is they were said things like, you were not present during this scene and you were not present. And it actually made me want to back it up and say, were they? (laughs) Did they actually do that right? Or did they just sort of, yeah, because I'm, I'm a pedant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Never mind. Yeah. Your job as continuity editor. (laughs) As continuity editor. Well, you know, I, that's the last thing you want in anything. Like if you were, writing, you know, I, I invited Dave to read uh, books that I kind of liked, and he th- threw it down and said, I hate it. This this author doesn't know about guns. I, I have guns, you know, it's mm-hmm. wrong. So it lost everything, the whole story arc, the idea, the world setting, everything died because he got guns wrong. My immersion has been crushed. Yes. <laughs> not, not necessarily just guns, it's whatever you happen to know about yeah it, it's true i do it security and it's really hard to watch the movie sneakers oh my goodness <laughs> you know, that, that, that probably is the, yeah my or my other favorite one keep them talking so we can trace the call to find out where this 911 call is coming from which is the dumbest thing ever and i'm convinced that the police put it out there saying now whatever you do make sure that people think it takes two minutes to trace a call absolutely as opposed to just for everybody's knowledge up there, if you go and you pick up your phone and you dial 911, they know where you are. You know, it's harder on the cell phone, but I'm noticing different states have opened up 911 because they have better triangulation. But mm-hmm. if you have a wired line and you dialed 911, and especially if you hang right up again, they will show up. Yes, they will. <laughs> I, I know because reasons. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you've heard. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard. Asking for a friend. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, so that's that's where that comes from. So where do you, I mean, you've you finished yours. Did you make all the way to a novel, or is it still novella length? Or I just did a year's project to decide to tell the next step of the story in novel format. And first of all, I got to educate myself on exactly how much work a full novel is. (laughs) It's a lot. It really is. And the um, base writing process for me was slightly under six months. And I'm going to put this in comparison. 15,000 words for a novella was 40 working hours of composition and roughly twice that in editing. Yeah. 80,000 words of novel is coming up on 13 months, including editing right now. So you're saying it's not linear. We are not Rachel Aaron or Sean and McGuire. We do not pump them out in the speed of... But on the other hand, it gets easier with practice. Your first one takes longer. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. Oddly enough, I'm familiar how long it takes because my charming wife is doing editing for this guy. So their (laughs) Skype calls to Japan happen a lot. Yes. (laughs) Ray has actually gotten to sit in on the back and forth of us uh, surrounding and cornering bad paragraphs and beating them into submission. Mm. And oddly enough, this is where some of this comes back around to role playing because we were talking about uh, a description of a fight scene that he's doing. And oddly enough, it sounded very much like uh, a game description. Yeah, I can actually field this one as a quick answer because I had a discussion with my one of my Washington colleagues 
um, who is classically trained as a fiction writer. So he got the, you must outline everything first, and you must compose in this format. You must write all, all chapters are best written from a single point of view. Mm-hmm. He's since grown past that, but it was his, his original education. And I will argue that it is a fine rule of thumb anyway, mm. because I, I got yelled at for this years ago, early wow. on when I was writing, and uh, Kit Carr in my writing group was the one who said, she paused and she looked at me and she said, when you were writing this, did you see it like it was a movie in your head? And I'm like, oh, yes, absolutely. She's like, yeah. You wrote it from a movie point of view, which isn't working as a novel point of view. Mm-hmm. So if you want to write a movie script, you know, that's different because then you can pan yes. to yep. this character and have him the voice in his head. And then you can pan to this character right. and have the voice in their heads. Like, But the problem is pronoun trouble, as Daffy Duck says. <laughs> 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 he doesn't think so. Wait, which he? We've now gotten to- the heat. <laughs> yes. super hard to pull off. And I've. I've seen where it works, but it is not very often. So that was scary hard to approach it any different way. The single point of view chapter is if you were to tell someone a way that they will most likely get it right the first time, that's what you should tell them. Right. There's a reason they teach it in school that way. And and I throw it around as the question. She's like, why do I need to know what that character is thinking for the first and perhaps only time in this book? Mm-hmm. And I had to stop and stare at her for a minute and say, what an excellent question that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and why do you need to know? <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I'm going to turn the other side of that coin and say, watching my colleague's work where he had three significant protagonist type characters in different parts of a very extended scene. He ended up writing three point-of-view chapters, each of them from their individuals, Mm -hmm. with so grievous an overlap of time between them that before you were into the second chapter, you knew what the third chapter's point-of-view would reveal. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so it felt like you were reading the same thing over and over again. Yep. And he felt hurt by this and was looking for other ways to approach it. I then showed him what I did for an extended fight scene at the end of what will be Remember Them, the new book coming out, which has a 26-page fight scene. Um, And I said, I told this story entirely in linear time. Well, you understand, I'm a girl who loves hover tanks, so big, long fight tanks and and heavy artillery are my thing. You're going to enjoy this one. I I have a couple of moments that you will like. Excellent. Um, but I told it in perfectly linear time. I think there are, in the entirety of that part of the novel, there are three overlapping paragraphs of less than five minutes of time. Mm-hmm. Everything else is told in linear time, which means I have to change perspectives. Mm-hmm. You're looking pained. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering how long in real time this uh the scene actually takes uh, beginning to end from the parts being described in a minute or so's activity to the stuff being described in seconds of activity. Mm-hmm. It's about 40 minutes beginning to end. That's a long fight. It really is. There's a lot of sneaking around leading into it. There are a lot of moments of perception. And then there is seven and a half minutes of trying not to be dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I was going to say in those, I, I will sit back on judgment and say, we'll have to read it. Mm. But then there's also the, okay, have a bunch of different people read it, as we always say, read it out loud and listen to somebody else reading it out loud. Mm-hmm. Because that was another one of the very useful things my friend said is have somebody else read it out loud to you or read it out loud to somebody. And not only will you find yourself suddenly saying, oh, I'm going to fix that. And yes. oh, I'm going <laughs> to. Reading out loud is probably the most useful continuity, scene, cleanness you can do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Just saying. having somebody else look at it is yeah. like 70, 80% of that, right? Well, yeah, I, I would say there's there's three pieces of it. One one isn't you, but there was a lovely gentleman up in Oregon that my mother knew, and she's like, "Will you look at my friend's story?" I'm like, ah, "Okay, because yep. this is your friend." And I had to send it back and say, "This isn't really readable. I need you to run it through by Grammarly, put it through Grammarly, because I can English see part. there is a story." trying to come out here, but your own use of words is getting in the way. Mm-hmm. And and he wrote back things saying, oh, my God, this is changing my life. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got to recommend, you know, Grammarly out there for everybody. I mean, if you can't trust just the basics of like Microsoft Word, which mm-hmm. also has you so. know, in grammar, I always say one set of words per paragraph. If I'm saying something in one paragraph and you're going to say something, that needs to be a new line. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you confuse the hell out of your readers. I mean, there's a lengthy section that mm-hmm. says that lines of dialogue should always be set off. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I, have, I follow that, but I understand why people say that in format. Because it's what everybody does. Yeah. Hey, and when you... <laughs> This stuff used to be taught in school. <laughs> it did. It did. I'm going to believe that it still is, but people kind of sleep through eighth grade English or something. Uh, yeah. Or, or I don't know what they're teaching. Maybe it's the new English. It's the same people teaching cursive. You know, it's, it's okay. I don't know. <laughs> but I did find it interesting looking back at trying to do linear timeline. And realizing that it required a number of other things to be added to it that were not part of normal storytelling. And almost all of them involved, well, what evolved in our case were pointers. You would be telling a thing. In this paragraph, this person does this action. In the next paragraph, the next person does this action. Mm -hmm. If they're in the same place, there's no need for a pointer. Right. But as soon as somebody is in a slightly different physical location affecting the larger situation, you have to Put in a one-liner of some sort to direct the reader to, you're no longer in the courtyard. Up on that rooftop looking to the west mm-hmm. is the other member of the team doing this. Right. There right. has to be something to point your attention. Well, the reader can't read your mind. Exactly. The reader cannot see until you put it out there. So expanding on the ancient rule... Don't edit your own work. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. We're going to put links to all of these stories and the games that we mentioned so that I can pimp out these wonderful gentlemen's work here. All of these interesting things will be on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, We answer email and notes. So if any of you listening to this reach out and want to ask more questions or um, didn't have enough link in there or you missed something, please feel free to reach out and ask questions. We live to answer email. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the host. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. 
Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag. 